Today, we are back in Matthew, and I want to remind you that the last time we are in Matthew, we left off with the need that we saw to fear Christ rather than man, and we learned the important concept that you will always end up serving the one you fear. If you fear man, you'll serve him. If you fear God, you'll serve Christ. Now, today, we're going to see that this fear and this desire, therefore, to serve Christ should lead believers to confess the Lord Jesus Christ with our mouth before men all the days of our lives. And so today we're going to learn that important concept that our outward confession is evidence of an inward possession of saving faith in Jesus Christ. So today we're only going to be covering two verses. There's a lot in here and there's a lot to explore and there's a lot of other data to come into in the next section. So we're only going to be covering two verses, but we're going to see that all the days of our lives as the people of God, we want to be those who confess the Lord Jesus Christ before others. That's the kind of people we want to be. Now, let me pull up my pointer here. We're just going to again cover two verses. And as we come into here, Matthew 10, 32-33, I want you to remember that Jesus now is explaining what it looks like to fear God. And what it looks like is that you and I would confess the Lord Jesus Christ before men. Notice Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, dear ones, the first thing I want you to see here is this inferential conjunction, therefore. It's actually very important because it shows us that Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is reaching a conclusion. It's a logical conclusion or inference that he has come to in light of what he's just spoken to us. Now remember, back in Matthew 10, the last section that we were in, we saw that we ought to fear God, not man. Remember in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear he who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, that would be man, but fear him, that's God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In light of that, we should therefore, what? Confess Christ before men. That's the logic. Now, notice here when he says, therefore, everyone who confesses, it's open to all. This is part of the universal call. The term in Greek is pas. It literally means all people. All who will confess the Lord, he will confess us before the Father in heaven. Now, what does it mean that you and I would confess the Lord, and that he would confess us? Well, the term confess, their homo logeo, means to have a consistent or constant word. But the way it's used in the New Testament, it has to do with an emphatic declaration that we would make about Jesus Christ often in the face of persecution or perhaps even accusations. The way it is used here in Matthew chapter 10 is that it has to do with us confessing who Christ is and what he has done before mankind, meaning before unbelieving men and women. And the implication of this confession is that it shows an inward possession. Pretty, pretty snazzy way of ringing it together, huh? So think about it. If we confess with our mouth, it shows that we have possession of our, in our heart of saving faith. That's the idea. Notice here we have the great reward. If you and I are those who confess and therefore possess saving faith, what will Christ do 
in the great eschatological day? Well, he will confess us before the Father who is in heaven. What a great reward. Think about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God par excellence. He is the one who, the moment you and I believed in him, we become adopted sons and daughters because of his work. And so the great promise is that you and I, on the last day, are going to be those who are confessed by the Lord Jesus Christ as being adopted sons and daughters. Think about what Jesus said in John 8, 35. He said that the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son, an implied daughter, does. And I can't think of a greater reward than the Son of God himself confessing that we are adopted sons and daughters and therefore belong to the family of God forevermore, that he will confess that on the last day. That is the confession we should live for. Therefore, we should live to fear and please him, not man. I think that that's the logic of this section. Now, notice here, though, we also see the contrary in verse 33 where he says, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, the term deny that you see in red comes from arneomai, which literally means to repudiate or to disown. And again, in the context, it would indicate a lack of confession. The opposite of confessing Christ is denying him. So the lack of confession shows a lack of possession of saving faith. That would be the implication. Now, we are going to wrestle today with the fact that it is true sometimes even true believers will fail to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the Apostle Peter. He was a genuine believer, and yet he denied Jesus Christ three times. We'll wrestle with that. But we want to take very seriously Christ's admonition that if we deny him, he will deny us. And the idea there is if it characterizes a person's life that they will not confess, it's a good bet that they don't possess saving faith. That's what Christ is driving at. And again, in the immediate context of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus' point is clear. If you fear Christ and therefore want to serve him, you'll confess his doctrines before man. If you fear man and you're concerned more about what they think of you, you won't confess the doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ before them. That's the way we read it. And again, ironically, Matthew, the apostle, is the one who depicts Peter, the other apostle, as the first to confess the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 16. Remember, Matthew 16, 16, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. But ironically, Matthew also shows us that Peter... The first to confess Christ is also the first to deny him, of course, apart from Judas. We see that in Matthew chapter 26. And so we want to wrestle with that. I think we have to realize that while confession must and will characterize all believers, remember, you and I are saved by Christ's perfection, not our own. And we have to remember that. Let me put up Matthew 16. Let's look at Peter's confession. I want you to recall that the scene here is at Caesarea Philippi. And recall that Jesus has asked the question, who do men say that I am? Well, of course, Peter speaks for the 12. He says, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or perhaps one of the prophets. 
Jesus pointedly looks at him and says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And that's where we pick it up here, Matthew 16, verses 16 through 17. It says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now notice here, dear ones, we have a confession by the Apostle Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Now, does this mean that Peter understands all that it means that Jesus is the Christ at this point? No. But it is a genuine confession. And in the term Christ and the Son of the living God is a summary of the person and work of the Messiah. This is a genuine confession. How do we know that? Because Jesus says so. Jesus says, notice in verse 17, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, this did not come from Peter, and it didn't come from any other person. It was revealed to him by whom? By the Father who is in heaven. Okay, so why is that important? Why am I laboring that? Because what it shows us is that whatever we say about this confession, it was genuine. Is the Heavenly Father going to give a disingenuous confession? To the Apostle Peter? I think not. So the reason that's important is we can put our stake in the ground and say, yes, this is a believer having a genuine confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet 10 chapters later, we see this. Matthew 26, 34, it says, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And the question I think we have to wrestle with is, well, how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile a true believer not confessing Christ? Dear ones, I think what it drives us to is that, yes, normally true believers will confess the Lord Jesus Christ, but we have to remember that our salvation is not based on the greatness of our confession of the Savior, but our salvation is based on the greatness of the Savior of our confession. It's the greatness of Christ, not our confession, that ultimately saves. Think of it this way. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, we learned some things that are held in paradox. Now, what do I mean by a paradox? Do you know that a true contradiction is irresolvable, like having a round square? If something's round, it's obviously not square. That's a contradiction. But a paradox is an apparent contradiction, but upon closer scrutiny, it is resolved. Now, remember back in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us difficult things. In fact, in Matthew 5, 48, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How many went away from that message saying, that's it, from now on I'm going to be perfect? If you came away with that idea that you can, by your own power, be perfect, then you're not understanding the Sermon on the Mount. But at the same time, if you come away from that message saying, I don't have to worry about the way I act or whether I love my neighbor or even my enemy as myself, then you don't understand the Sermon on the Mount. The idea revealed on the Sermon on the Mount is not that we can do those things by our power, but we will do those things by his power. In the same way, dear ones, we have to realize that our confession and our faith is something that God gives. Brothers and sisters, the outward confession really is the sign of the inward possession of saving faith. And we have to know that Peter's failure 
was not the end of the story. He ended up going to his very death, confessing the Lord Jesus Christ, who had purchased him by his blood. And dear ones, you and I, by God's grace, will be those who persevere and do the same. Now, let's come to some points of application. I have three of them for you here this morning. Number one, we must know that the confession of Christ is the outward profession that comes from the inward possession of faith. That's a lot of Eshens, is it not? I was feeling fairly proud of myself that I could string those together, but yet I think it is true. The outward confession shows you have inward possession. Why? Because it's only by the Spirit that anyone says Jesus Christ is Lord. We have to know that. Number two, the central role of the Holy Spirit is to bring about the confession of Christ in the lives of believers. That's the central role. So I want to connect what Jesus is saying about us confessing Christ, that is confessing himself, with what we see in the wider New Testament about the work of the Spirit. Number three, we should all live to have Christ confess us before the Father. That should be our great desire, that on that great day, he will confess that you and I are adopted sons and daughters and belong to the household forevermore. That's what we should live for. Let's live to fear and please Christ, not man. Okay, let's begin with number one. I want to begin by discussing the relationship between saving faith and the verbal confession of faith. And again, my claim is fairly simple, yet I hope it's somewhat profound, is that our confession of Christ is evidence of an inward possession of saving faith. And let me show you a passage where I think this is implied. Remember here in Romans 10, Paul is talking about the simple necessity to believe the word. Do you remember when he rebukes the Israelites because they did not simply believe the word that was with them? He cites Deuteronomy 30. And in Deuteronomy 30, he cites the idea that God has not asked his people to do anything impossible. He did not ask us to ascend into the heavens to bring Christ down or to go down to Sheol, that is to bring Christ up, but simply to believe the word. So God hasn't asked the impossible, but rather believe the word. And in light of that, notice he says in verses 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God, has raised, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in in salvation. Now, dear ones, what Paul wants his audience to know here in Romans 10 is the practical outflow of inward faith. For Paul and the rest of the Bible, salvation has always been by faith alone. It always is by faith alone. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, he says it's credited as righteousness those who have faith. And what's the supreme example? Well, Abraham, who believed God, and it was credited him as righteousness. We get to Romans 10.4. Paul says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So certainly salvation is by faith alone. But here he's showing us the relationship between the possession of faith and the confession with the mouth. Notice, in fact, we have a chiasm. And I know a lot of you were wondering if we're going to have a chiasm today. Notice if we confess with our mouth, notice mouth, and believe with your heart, notice then we have believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth. So it goes mouth, heart, heart, mouth. There's a chiasm. Now, what's being accentuated, I think, here is that if you really believe 
in your heart, you're really going to confess with your mouth. That's the idea. Now, what I want to do is I want to stress that we should not turn Romans 10, 9 through 10 into a formula. I've seen this as a pastor where people will argue, unless you use these very words, you are somehow not saved. In fact, I used to fall into that when I was a brand new believer years ago myself. Well, let me just illustrate why this can't be pressed into a formula itself. Notice here, Paul says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Well, let's think about the confession that we just read about Peter in Caesarea Philippi. Matthew 16, 16, did Peter say those identical words? Well, no, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, notice that is different than saying Jesus as Lord, and yet the effect is the same. The idea is that Lord here is a synecdoche of all that Christ is. A synecdoche is a figure, a device, a literary device, where the part represents the whole. So the lordship of Christ summarizes all that he is. If he's Lord, he's the creator. If he's Lord, he's the savior. Remember Isaiah 43, 11, the Lord says, I, Yahweh, am the savior. There's no savior besides me. And so it implies all that he is. In the same way, notice he says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, wait a minute. Shouldn't you and I believe that Christ also died for our sins? Well, yes, but the resurrection is like a synecdoche. It is a summary. It is a capstone statement for all that he's done. Obviously, he's been raised from the dead. He's obviously also been what? He's been crucified for our sin. Let me show you another passage that we get this idea of synecdoche. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 3.21. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 3.21, if you would. Again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. I'm going to show you another place where I think we have a, a synecdoche. And again, I'm claiming that it's just simply a literary di- device where it shows you a part represents the whole of the work. 1 Peter 3.21, if you've turned there, remember the context here has to do with Noah and his family going through the floodwaters. Well, then Peter says this. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now, stop there. Notice he's going to be very quick to say it's not the act done, but what is symbolized through it or what is appealed to through it. Notice he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So it's not the act itself, but what? But an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, notice how we have this good conscience. He says, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why doesn't he say it's through the shed blood on the cross? Again, he's not denying that Christ shed his blood. He's using the resurrection as a synecdoche. In the same way, Paul is using believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ for a summary of all that Christ has done. And so you see this link with confessing all that Christ is, his lordship, and all that he has done. You really have the person and work of Christ. Brothers and sisters, what Paul is showing us is that if we have true possession of saving faith, we will have true confession of the person and work of Jesus Christ before men. There is a relationship between possession and confession in the faith. Now, today, I also want us to learn that genuine believers simply don't confess Christ once and then walk away. 
that genuine believers will continue to persevere and confess Christ all the days of their lives. The call by Jesus Christ to confess him is really a reminder that we have really a responsibility to have fidelity with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a reminder that you and I are to live for Christ and to please him rather than man. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. What would you think of your spouse if they denied you before others? You go out to eat, you sit down with your friends, and your spouse says, I don't even know this guy. (laughs) That would be bad. That would show, obviously, a breach in the relationship. Well, how much more so that you and I would deny the Lord Jesus Christ who purchased us by his blood. That's how we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He purchased us by his blood. And when he purchased us, you and I became slaves of Christ. We became soldiers of Christ. And he commissioned us with a mission to go proclaim the gospel to the nations. In fact, we are to make disciples of all nations. How are we going to do that if we won't confess Christ? So do you see then, brothers and sisters, it's important that you and I realize how significant it is to confess Christ. The reason I think this is so important is how many times have you heard from social gospelers or perhaps those who are post-millennial in their thinking, I've often heard them say things like, well, give the gospel always, and if you have to, use words. And when I was a younger Christian, I thought, oh, yes, there's a lot of wisdom there. We're going to do, do such great works that people will see it and they'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. But dear ones, Romans ten seventeen does not say, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by seeing people do good deeds. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of Christ. And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? Blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. That's what Paul goes on to say in Romans 10. So, of course, we have to confess Christ. In fact, this is the example that's given to us, I think, from Timothy, who functioned as an elder slash pastor in Ephesus. Notice here what Paul said to him. And I think implied here is the need to persevere in confessing Christ. Let me show you why. Notice he commands Timothy, he says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of of many witnesses. Now, dear ones, notice here, Timothy is to fight the good fight of faith in light of the fact that what? That he made the good confession. But dear ones, when Timothy is going to fight the fight of faith, what kind of weapons is he going to use? Is he going to use swords or firearms? No, it's words. So the implication is that Timothy is tasked with a battle. And in fact, if you read First and Second Timothy, he is inundated in a battle which through his confession of the true doctrines of Jesus Christ, he is refuting false teachers. Hymenaeus and Philetus say the resurrection already occurred. Timothy confesses that's false. And he confesses the true doctrines of Christ, that Christ is returning to bodily raise the dead. You have some that say we have to go back to the law. Timothy confesses with the weapons of his words that no, that's not true. We're going to stay with Christ alone. That's the idea. And so, yes, this battle to fight the good fight of faith 
is a battle to confess the doctrines of Christ all the days of her life. It is not sufficient to say, I confessed Christ before men back in 1982, and I've had nothing to do with it since. That's not the Christian walk. The Christian walk is to fight the good fight of faith and to confess the doctrines of Christ all of our days. Let me show you another example. Hebrews chapter 11. Remember in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to put up verse 13 here. But if you would, by the way, turn your Bibles to Hebrews eleven fourteen, 14, because I couldn't fit it all in the screen. Remember, when we're in heaven, our PowerPoint will be able to fit all of the verses that we need. The Lord has made that promise somewhere, I'm sure. Hebrews eleven thirteen. recall in Hebrews 11, we're in the hall of fame of faith, where you see various saints, whether it be Rahab or Abraham or Moses, who had gone on before, and the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that they persevered by faith, that they lived for the future promises of God. That's how they could live godly lives and do that which is right in a perverse age. So notice here in Hebrews 11.13, he comes to sort of a summary. He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, notice in the very next verse, verse 14, again, I couldn't fit it on the screen, it says, for those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. Now, notice this idea in verse 14, for those who say such things, it is characterized in the people of God to confess all the days of their life the doctrines of Christ. And one of those doctrines here is that we don't belong. We don't belong to this world. We belong to a greater king and kingdom. And all the way through the Old Testament, you see the patriarchs confess that very thing. In fact, turn your Bibles to Genesis 23, verse 4. Genesis 23, 4. I want you to see some confessions of the saints gone by. Genesis 23, verse 4. Please turn your Bibles back to the first book of our Bible. Genesis 23, 4. As you read this, here we're going to see that Abraham is going to bury his wife, Sarah. Remember, the Hittites own this land. It's right around Hebron. And if you recall, at the time, Abraham owned nothing of the promised land. So the irony is the one who's promised the promised land doesn't own any of it except a little piece to bury his wife. The question is, how could he stand it? Well, because he keeps confessing that there's a greater king and kingdom that he belongs to. Notice what he says here. He says this to the sons of Heth, which are Hittites, who own the land. Abraham says, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He says, I'm a sojourner. I'm a stranger. I don't belong. Well, wait a minute. Didn't God promise him that land? Well, yes, what he's saying is I belong to a greater king and kingdom. It's not now. He's confessing that he's a stranger. He's confessing that there's a future reward. And all the way through the scriptures, the patriarchs do this. Uh, If you just jot down, if you're a note taker, Genesis 47, 9, Jacob tells Pharaoh he's a sojourner. You see it in 1 Chronicles 29.15. David confesses before God and the people that the patriarchs and himself were sojourners and strangers. Brothers and sisters, all the way through the scriptures, the people of God confessed that there was a greater king and kingdom that they belonged to. And they didn't just do it once. It wasn't just Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God, it was credited him as righteousness, and then it was over. 
He can live like the pagans and do anything he wanted. No, he continuously confessed, and so must you and I. You and I cannot rest on our laurels and say, well, you know, back in 1992, I confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. I confessed him before men, but I won't do it now. No, we have to be those who continuously confess the Lord Jesus Christ and his doctrines all the days of our lives. And we have to know that we do so only by his power. Dear ones, I want to address the issue again of the Apostle Peter because, again, he was an example of one who failed, and yet the Lord restored him. I had mentioned earlier that there is some irony in that Matthew depicts Peter, the first to confess Christ, to be, in a sense, who first denies Christ. Now, today, Jesus promised that if we confess him before men, that he would confess us before the Father. And I think that this, coupled with Peter's failure, causes a tension Again, in Matthew, that must be resolved. And again, I want to reiterate that you and I have to affirm two things. Number one, that true believers do confess Christ. We do and we will. But we also have to say, number two, the second premise, is sometimes even true believers fail. And those are not contradictions. It would be a contradiction to say that we confess and we don't confess Christ at the same time in the same relationship. That's a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction to say, The people of God will confess Christ, but sometimes they fail. That's what the scriptures show us. But again, we have to remember that our salvation is based on Christ's perfect work, not our own. It's not our own. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John 10, 27 through 28. John 10, 27 through 28. I want to show you some words that will give you comfort. And I want to comfort some because perhaps there are some here, there are some listening to say, I've gaffed it. I've had opportunities to confess Christ, and truth be told, I haven't always been faithful. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you today that even if you've left go of Christ, if you belong to him, he will hold on to you. I want to show you that. Notice here, John 10, 27 through 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I love that at the end, no one will snatch those who belong to Jesus Christ out of his hand. So the idea is it's not so much that you and I are clawing and clinging to him, but rather he has us securely in his grip. Many of you in here I know have received an email or two perhaps from Diane DeWay, Bob's wife, and when she signs the end of her email, she always signs it held in his grip. Well, that's exactly right. That, that comes, well, I would assume she's getting it here from John 10, 28. I'll have to ask her sometime, but I'm assuming that's where it comes from. That's exactly right. We are held in his grip. Turn uh, your Bibles again to John chapter 21. I want to show you the restoration of Peter. The Peter who confessed Christ, yet denied him three times, ends up being restored in a very profound way. Most of you know how he was restored, but for those that don't, I want to to show you. And it's a good reminder for all of us. Turn your Bibles to John 21, verses 15 through 17. Now, as we turn here, remember, Jesus is in his resurrected body. He's having breakfast with the disciples, and he's going to restore here Peter, the apostle. Notice in verse 15, it says, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. Verse 16, this is Jesus speaking to Peter again. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. Notice verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. Stop there. That's affirming the deity of Christ. He is the Lord who knows all things. He says, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Do you think it's a coincidence that the Peter who denied Christ three times is asked three times by Christ, do you love me? In other words, this is a do-over, Peter. Why? Not because Peter's great, but because the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, his Savior, is great. That's the idea. That the elect will never be lost from the grip of the Holy One of Israel. In fact, notice what Paul says here in 2 Timothy 2, 11-13. Great encouraging words. He says, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, one of the big debates in this text focuses on what you see here rendered, he remains faithful. Does that mean that he is going to be faithful to judge or that he is faithful to save? Well, I think in the context of all the Pauline literature, normally, Christ's faithfulness and God's faithfulness is associated with the salvation of his people. So I think what's being stated here is there are times, like Peter, when we are faithless, well, he remains faithful. Why? Because he can't deny the covenant promises that he unilaterally made. Dear brothers and sisters, let us be those who confess Christ. But let us never forget that the greatness of our salvation has never been dependent upon the greatness of our confession of the Savior. It's always been dependent upon the greatness of the Savior of our confession. Let's remember that. Okay, now, let's go on to our second point. I want to look at the Spirit's role in confessing Christ. I want everyone here to see the connection between Christ's words that we have to confess Him and the role of the Holy Spirit bringing about the confession of people, or excuse me, of Christ in the lives of the people. Now, I want you to think about the work of the Holy Spirit and how it's connected to us confessing Christ. And I want you to see that, first of all, the Holy Spirit is seen and depicted by Christ as the one who will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We see that in John 16, 8. Now, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That means the Holy Spirit will, for God's elect, convict them so that they see a problem with their sin and rebellion against God. And they will be grieved by it. And therefore, they will seek the remedy. That's the idea of the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But notice, being grieved doesn't mean you're saved. There has to be a belief in the remedy, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does as well. The Holy Spirit, according to John 3, 3 through 5, and Titus 3, 5, is the one who takes dead hearts and regenerates them, enabling them to believe 
upon the gospel. So the Holy Spirit not only shows us our need, he gives us the remedy, and he even enables us to believe the remedy. That is the power and the work of the third person of the Trinity. And the result of that will be the confession of the doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ from the people of God. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus promises here in John 15, 26, when he says, when the helper, that's the parakletos, like a defense advocate, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So what will the Holy Spirit do when he comes? Is he going to make sure that there's gold fillings in everybody's mouth? Or gold dust that comes out of the vents? Or that people are going to be slain in the Spirit? No, he's going to confess Christ. He's going to bring about the testimony of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in the very next verse, he says, and you, that would be the apostles, but by extension, all the believers who come after, you will testify also. And he says, of the apostles, because you have been with me from the beginning. The apostles also testify of Christ. They give us the word of God. You and I believe from that, and therefore, we confess Christ. That's the way it works. Now, let me show you another passage where we see clearly this is the case. Notice 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Paul says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. How are you and I going to confess Christ? Is it because we had a great idea one day to start doing it? No, it is the power of the third person of the Trinity. He will bring about the confession of the doctrines of Christ in the mouths of God's people. Why does this matter so much to us Christians living in Minnesota, the United States, in the year of our Lord 2024? It matters because false teachers are going to tell you the work of the Spirit is something different. That the work of the Spirit is focused on us rather than on Christ. And so for them, the false teachers, they'll say, well, the true work of the Spirit is that you speak gibberish or that you fall down when someone touches you. I had this experience when I was a brand new Christian. I went to a church where they tried to slay me in the Spirit. And they were trying to push me down. And at the time, I was kind of a weightlifter. I was about 230 pounds. I'm like, I don't want anybody pushing me down. I was a little... A little offended. They're trying to push me down, and I didn't want to fall down. I wanted to know who God was. And so instead of telling me the doctrines of Jesus Christ revealed by the Spirit and the Scriptures, they're trying to push me down. Well, how does that help? So is it the work of the Spirit to see someone fall over or to have gold dust, as some charlatans have claimed, come through the vents? No, what you and I can know to be a work of the Spirit is when someone confesses who Christ is and what he has done. Why? Because we know that is only available by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who realize the power of the Spirit's work. Not when we see some charlatan trying to conjure up some false miracle, but when we see even the lowliest, even the lowliest out there, confess who Jesus is and what he has done. You can be sure that confession is a work of the Spirit. Okay, now let's come to our final point today. If you recall in my previous message in Matthew 10, I showed you that we were called to fear God, not man. And again, the principle is you will always serve the one you fear. 
If you fear man, you'll serve him. If you fear Christ, you'll serve him. The outflow of that in this passage that we read about in Matthew 10 today is that we would confess Christ. If you fear man, you won't confess him. If you fear Christ, you'll confess Christ. And so what I want to show you is that one thing that you and I should live for, one of the great promises in the scriptures, and by the way, thank you, Steve Gretsch, for teaching us about the promises of God so faithfully week after week. This is one I'm sure you probably hit already, but think about the great promise that you and I will be confessed before the Father, that you and I will be confessed by the Son to belong to the Father and the kingdom forevermore. That's what you and I should live for. Dear one, sadly, that's not what the Israelite leadership was living for in Jesus' day. Let's see the connection again between faith and confession. Notice here in John 12, 42 through 43, it says regarding the rulers of Israel, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. Stop there. Notice some of the rulers, John is saying, really did believe in Christ. It says in red, though, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. Now we're given the first explanatory four. Four, fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Second explanatory four. Four, they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They live to please man rather than God. Dear brothers and sisters, what about you? As you go out of the doors today, the temptation for you will be to say, I, I want to be accepted and spoken of highly by my fellow coworkers, my friends, my family that don't believe. I want to be spoken highly of and valued by these unbelievers around me. And therefore, you remain silent and you don't confess the doctrines of Christ. What I want you to do is challenge yourself today to say, hey, am I no different than the rulers of Israel who love the approval of men rather than that of God? Brothers and sisters, let us live for the great confession. The great confession isn't ours. It, it is that. But it's that day where Jesus Christ confesses us before the Father. Let's live for his approval, not man's. Let me leave you with this and we'll pray Think about these words. Remember, Jesus addressed all seven churches in Asia Minor. Here's his address to Sardis. And remember, what Jesus says to one of the seven churches, he says by extension to all believers. He says in Revelation 3, 5, he says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Dear ones, notice the promises to he who overcomes. He overcomes. How do you overcome? By the way, if you're a note-taker, jot down 1 John 5, 4. Because 1 John 5, 4 tells you how you can be an overcomer. It's by faith. It's by the inward possession of saving faith in the person and work of Christ. That's how you're an overcomer. And then you live that out. And if you're that overcomer who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, what's going to happen? Well, he's going to confess you before the Father. He's going to confess that you're a fellow son or daughter and that, as he said in John 8, 35, where the slave does not remain in the house forever, he's going to confess that you do. That's what you and I should live for. The great confession at the end of the time where Christ confesses us before the Father. Now, with that, I want to leave you with confessing 
the Lord Jesus Christ myself. I want to not only tell you to do it, I want to do it. I want to do it with you. Let's confess the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, it's good news. Um, it comes from the term euangelion, which means good news or gospel. So an evangelical is a good newser. We're the ones with the doctrines of Christ upon our lips. That's what we should be. But I always tell people the good news of the gospel only makes sense in light of the bad news. What is the bad news that's revealed in our same scriptures that give us the good news? Well, the bad news is very bad. The bad news is that every single person has rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed. We're cosmic rebels who have violated his holy law. That's bad. And it gets worse when we consider the fact that the wages of our rebellion is death. Not just a separation of body and soul. That's physical death. That's bad enough. But one day, what the scriptures promise is there's going to be a, a second death, which is separation from God in the lake of fire. That's forever. That's bad. I can't think of any worse news than that I'm a cosmic rebel against God and that one day I'm going to suffer eternal torment in a lake of fire. I can't think of any worse news than that. But it's precisely in light of that bad news that the good news of the gospel shines. The good news is that God, who is the eternal creator, in the past had decided to send forth his son, the son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in time, he humbled himself and he became a man through a virgin birth. So that in one individual, we would have someone who is truly God and truly man so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could. All of us had failed just like Adam. But our new Adam, our second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, our new representative, he lived the perfect life so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. But Jesus didn't simply live the perfect life. He also died a substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus the just, on behalf of us the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God. Meaning that when Jesus died on the cross, he took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath that believers deserve to be punished with, but he paid it off so that we can have righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, and the assurance of everlasting life. The proof that Jesus did this was seen by the fact that on the third day after his bodily death, he was bodily raised from the dead. This resurrection proves all of his claims. It proves that he's Lord and judge of all. It proves that when he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him we can believe it. Why? He was raised from the dead. Jesus also ascended into the heavens where he was seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom and a resurrection for his people, but wrath and judgment upon his enemies. What must we do to be one of his people to have everlasting life? Well, Jesus commands every single person in Mark 1.15 to repent and to believe the gospel. What repentance is, metonoeo, it's an afterthought or a change of mind which leads to a change of direction. Or we're turning from idolatry, serving sin, self, and the world, and we turn to God in his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Today, if you will trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, by the authority of scriptures, I declare to you, you will have the forgiveness of sins and the absolute assurance of everlasting life. And we have to know that for those of you that have that possession of saving faith and everlasting life, 
as you go out the door, you must have also the confession of this Christ upon your lips. That's our high calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are very clear what we must do and say before the unbelieving world, that we must be those who confess your doctrines and your greatness, your goodness, not because we're trying to earn salvation, but out of gratitude for the gracious salvation that you've provided for us. We do pray, Heavenly Father, as we go out the door and into the world, before our unbelieving family, friends, the people that we love, even though we may disagree, we pray that you would give us the opportunity to proclaim your gospel to them. We pray, Lord, that you give us boldness to have the doctrines of Christ upon our lips. We pray, Lord, by your Spirit, you regenerate them, enable them to believe, bring them to your kingdom. We pray that you'd use us, put the confession of your Son upon our lips. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.